0: Well, let's let's pray. Lord, we here this morning ask for your grace. That is what we need. We need grace to hear. Lord, I need your grace to bring forth your word. I need your grace to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I need your grace to preach This plan of the mystery that you have designed from ages past. God, give us your grace this morning, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Mysteries. Mysteries are everywhere. All around us and just about everything. A mystery is something that is unknown or that is not understood. It involves the what, the when, the why, the how something occurred. Why did he do that? I don't know. It's a mystery. How did that happen? I don't know. It's a mystery. How did the Cincinnati Bengals make it to the Super Bowl? Divine intervention. I don't know. Divine intervention. How did they beat the Titans? How did they beat the Chiefs at Arrowhead? It's a mystery. Now. I do think I know the solution to the mystery. It's Cincinnati chili. (laughs) After all, it is one of the greatest foods in the world, and it probably endows special powers to those who eat it. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. How many people have actually had Cincinnati chili? See, the rest of you all, it's still a mystery. But I digress. When we think of mysteries, we usually think of stories, whodunits, Agatha Christie or Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, novels as Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes try to solve a mystery of a murder or, or of a robbery. A majority of the movies or television shows, both past and present, involve some kind of mystery, mysteries about some strange phenomena or some kind of crime or some unknown medical condition. They are filled with problems, with riddles, with puzzles, which baffle and perplex us and which we try to solve along with the main characters, right? As we enter chapter three of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the main concept Paul is addressing is what he terms the mystery. The term appears four times in this small passage. This mystery is the simple, central theme of Paul's ministry and message in these verses, But this mystery is not quite the same kind of mystery that I was just talking about. A mystery was understood differently in Paul's day. Back then, the Greek word mysterion, from which we get our word mystery, um, it referred to something known only to a select group of people, to those whom that knowledge had been revealed. And that is exactly how Paul used it here in this passage. Something hidden from common knowledge but that had been made known revealed to him. We see it throughout verse three. It says the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse five, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Verse nine, to bring to light, to make known to, for everyone, What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in Christ? This mystery was a truth that had been hidden or obscured in the past, but which now had been revealed, made known to Paul and to the other apostles and prophets. And now he is making it known to his readers. Paul's ministry was all about this mystery. If you would open verse one, Ephesians chapter three, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, there's the mystery and his ministry, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 7 Of this gospel I was made a minister. There's his ministry again, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So his ministry was all about this mystery. But before we get to what that mystery is, let's first look into Paul's ministry. There are several facets that are shown here. First, Paul was a steward of God's grace. Verse two, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, a steward was someone who carefully and responsibly managed or oversaw something entrusted to their care. This message of the mystery was something that God had entrusted to Paul for his care, for his oversight. This isn't the only word that Paul uses to describe his ministry and responsibility and calling though. In verse seven, he says that he had been made a minister, a minister. This is not our traditional definition of minister, as in a professional pastor, a reverend. Um, The word here for minister is diaconus. Ah, That might sound pretty familiar. It's the word where we get get the term deacon from. And it literally means servant or someone who helps or serves others. In verse eight, Paul says that he was called to preach to the Gentiles. And in verse nine, to bring to light to everyone, the mystery that had been revealed to him. So Paul was given the responsibility of serving God and the Gentiles by overseeing, by preserving, by protecting and proclaiming the message and truth of God's grace. In other words, he was an ambassador of God's grace to the Gentiles. Now, before we proceed further, we need to identify who the Gentiles were. We might be tempted to think that they were a certain group of people, a particular nation or group of nations from a certain region. But that is not what Gentile means. The word Gentile in Greek is ethnos. That one might sound eerily familiar too. It is the word where we get our term ethnicity from. It literally means peoples of the nations, plural. In other words, everybody, air Got that? Everybody repeat. Everybody, air Well done. The Gentiles are everybody, airware. He even says that to me. This grace was given to bring to light for everyone one what is the plan of the mystery. So Paul's calling was to be an ambassador of God's grace to all peoples. Another thing that we see is that Paul viewed himself as the very least of the saints. Now. This is not false humility, folks. I mean, we're all thinking Paul. Paul, why would Paul say that? The very least of the saints? You see, this was Paul's expression of the realization of his utter and desperate need of independence upon God's grace. Do you remember that whole dead in transgressions and sins thing that he had just written? He realized that he was speaking of himself too. He was no better, no wiser. There was no room for boasting for himself as well. There was no reason for him to think that he was in any way superior to any other saint because he knew that we are all equally dead in our trespasses and sins and all equally dependent upon God's grace. In every way, in every shape, in every form. Paul recognized that without being given grace... He was utterly inept and incapable of preaching or stewarding this message. Even Paul, yes, even Paul, he needed God's grace. Which brings us to the third thing that we learn about Paul's ministry. Paul was given grace. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given me. It's not the first time that he said it, is it? He said it in verse two, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse seven, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. God gave grace to Paul. And that is why Paul could preach this message. Paul's abilities to serve and steward and minister and preach were holy by the grace of God alone and no inherent ability within himself. So let me ask you, by a show of hands, how many of you here have been called to be ministers, stewards, ambassadors of God's grace? pretty good. Very good. In case you didn't raise your hand, let me read you something. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us. The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He says to to Timothy, to the people in his letter to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's to everybody. Everybody. Now, how many of you have been called to be ministers, stewards, and ambassadors of God's grace? Keep raising everybody. But Jason... I'm not able, you say. I'm not capable of doing this. You're right. You're not. And neither am I, nor Kurt, nor Wolf, nor Bill, nor Mike, nor Mark, not even Jason who has a DR before his name. And the sense of inadequacy you're feeling is exactly how Paul felt about himself. And hence why he said, I am the least of the saints. Which means that we recognize that we are in need of God's grace in order to fulfill our calling to be an ambassador. And that's a good thing. If you think you can do it without God's grace, you need God's grace. So by a show of hands... How many people in here have been given God's grace? Good. Let me read you a couple verses just in case you're questioning. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul also said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way, You were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. He did that for you. His grace enriches you in all speech and all knowledge. Again, in 2 Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Because of his purpose and grace. So, how are we essentially different from Paul? Are we called to the ministry of reconciliation like he was? Everybody say, yeah. Yeah. Do we have the revelation of the gospel of God's grace like he does? Like he did? Everybody say, everybody say, thank you. Are we just as incapable as he was? Everybody say, yeah. Are we able to be empowered by God's grace like he was? Everybody say, Yes. yes. Are we recipients of God's grace like he was? Everybody say, yes. Are there all kinds of people everywhere on earth, including in Colorado Springs, that need to hear the message of God's grace and reconciliation? Amen. Now let's move to what it was that had been revealed to Paul and that he was to preach and to bring to light for everyone. In verses eight and nine, we are told that his ministry and preaching was comprised of two things, the unsearchable riches of Christ and the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in that order. And you'll see why. First are the unsearchable riches of Christ. Those unsearchable riches of Christ are the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done, his unsearchable riches are the gospel. Let me repeat that to you. Who Jesus is and what he has done, his unsearchable riches are the gospel. This is what Paul preached first because it was of first importance. We were dead in sins and trespasses and children of wrath, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with whom? With Christ. These are the unsearchable riches of Christ, the immeasurable grace of God in Jesus Christ salvation by grace alone, by grace you have been saved through faith alone, through faith and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. In the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. As Paul says to the church at Colossae, for in Jesus Christ And because of these riches, through this gospel, the mysterious plan of God was realized. Without these riches, there is not the other thing. There is no mystery if there are no riches. There is no mystery if there is no gospel. The plan of the mystery is contingent upon and a consequence of the unsearchable riches of Christ. As Paul says in verse six, the mystery is through the gospel. It is because of the unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul can then bring the mystery to light. So what was the mystery? Paul says it as clearly and straightforwardly as he possibly could. Verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Gee, that sounds like what Bill was talking about just last week. It is. It is. Paul had already begun revealing the mystery in the previous 11 verses. Paul is now reiterating and elaborating upon what he just said in those verses. He is shedding more light for his reader upon the mystery. Now, remember that repetition means what? Emphasis, right? Repetition means emphasis. This mystery is a glorious truth that displays the manifold wisdom of God. And so, Paul wants to make sure that his readers clearly understand what it is, its importance, and its implications. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So in defining the mystery here, Paul illuminates three more facets of this many splendor truth. In it, he says that the Gentiles, remember, they are what? air buddy, air wear. People from every nation, every ethnicity. They are, through the gospel, three things. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. Now, the way Paul writes this is sometimes lost to us in English. Remember how I just said that repetition equals emphasis? Well, in this verse in the Greek, we have a triple repetition. We don't see that in our English, right? Triple repetition here. The same prefix appears at the beginning of each of these adjectives. The prefix essentially means together or the same. In other words, Paul is saying that the Jews and Gentiles are equal heirs in Christ Jesus, equal members of the body in Christ Jesus, and equal partners and partakers in God's promise in Christ Jesus. I don't want you to let the gravity of this pass by. We today are accustomed to this truth, at least cerebrally, and its impact escapes us. Isn't a big revelation to us because, well, it hasn't been a mystery for 2,000 years, at least to some of us. Well, if you're that old, Bill, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but to Paul's readers in Paul's day, this was truly earth shaking, paradigm moving, mind blowing truth. It was. All y'all Gentiles are equal to the Jews in Christ and receive all the same benefits when you have faith in him. What? How is this possible? The Gentiles were second-class citizens. No, scratch that. They weren't citizens at all. They were less than human. They were not worthy of being a part of Israel, or the Israelite community, or even of worshiping God. They were subhuman. And now you're saying, what? You know, they were strangers and aliens. Paul said it in chapter two, Bill covered it last week. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's, that's bad. Paul seems to be now contrasting this truth with that one. The before the mystery was revealed and now the after the mystery, the truth has occurred by grace through faith in Christ. You see, he says, you once were separated from Christ. Now your fellow heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as Paul says in Romans eight seventeen, The Gentiles inherit exactly what the Jews do. There's no difference. Everyone who is in Christ will inherit the same thing. We are equal heirs. You once were alienated from the commonwealth that is the citizenship of Israel. Now you're members of the same body. We, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, Romans 12, 5. The Gentiles are equal members with equal rights and equal privileges and equal responsibilities as equal citizens of the kingdom of God. They are equally his people. And he, their God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. You once were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now you're partakers of the promise. And if you are Christ, then you are heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3. The Gentiles are equal beneficiaries of all the covenant promises based on the same requirements of the covenant, which is what? faith alone. That's it. James Boyce says this, these words embrace all that a person receives or will receive in salvation. It is the whole of God's blessing possessed jointly by all believers and with Christ in and with Christ. So there is no inner circle or outer circle of the saved. The Jews are not first-rate Christians and the Gentiles second, or vice versa. All who are in Christ inherit all God's blessings, and they inherit jointly, they hold it together in the one body of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He's speaking about you, folks. He's speaking about you. Just about everybody in here is a Gentile. We're from airware aren't we? Our lineage is from airware. And it wasn't just national or ethnic differences Paul was addressing here either. Remember, he's talking to everybody, everybody from airware. By extension, Paul is also speaking to people that have been marginalized or excluded by every other conceivable demographic you can imagine. Gender, class, wealth, power, marital status, disability, age, and culture. Because salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone alone. All who are in Jesus Christ, all believers everywhere at all times are equal heirs, equal members of the body, and equal partners and partakers in God's covenant promises. Amen? Amen. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Wow. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor, excuse me, nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All us versus them thinking All group divisions, all grievances are wonderfully transcended by a shiny new group identity. You are all one in Christ, says Sad Williams. In Christ, ethnic enemies become family. Oppressed and oppressors become brothers and sisters. And privileged and underprivileged become equally loved siblings under the same all loving father. And do you see why this must begin? With the gospel? With God's grace and only by faith alone? Do you see why? Do you see why this is? You see, if there were anything other than this, then these potential barriers of disunity would still be able to be erected. Wouldn't they? For I would be able to point to something within myself so as to distinguish myself, to establish my superiority over someone in some way within the body of Christ, if it's not by faith alone, if it's by anything else, I can stand and go, oh, look at me. You inferior. If our salvation had anything to do with physical traits, spiritual traits, cultural traits, national traits, my works or my worth, then the alienation would not have been removed. And the dividing wall of hostility between individuals in the body of Christ would still stand strong. John Piper says, no color, no ethnicity, no intelligence, no skill, no human wealth or power can add anything to the all-sufficient, all-effective sacrifice of Christ the redeemed of every race and ethnicity are one in our utter dependence on his effective blood and righteousness. We see that the payment for our liberation, the blood and righteousness of Christ is so complete that we could not and did not make any contribution to it, whether by our willing or running or any ethnic distinctives. The one man, the one people, the one body, the one church composed of every tribe, tongue, and nation is the mystery and is the fruit of the gospel. Any and all righteous status that we have is solely in Jesus, not our color, not our ethnicity, not gender, not the amount of oppression we have or our ancestors have or haven't experienced. Not our good works, our ticking the, the right squares on the ballot, or our height or our hierarchy of privilege or pain. It is nothing but Jesus. It is nothing but Jesus. It is nothing but Jesus. Yeah. What basis is there then for prejudice? discrimination, favoritism, partiality, superiority, or hatred within the church or within my heart? What basis is there then for thinking of or treating anyone within the body of Christ with less respect or less honor, less kindness or less dignity? What basis is there then for believing or showing partiality based upon nationality, ethnicity, gender, disability, cultural expression, political affiliation, intelligence, or age? What basis is there then for tribalism, judging someone based upon any kind of physical or genetic trait, ethnic or social group, economic or class distinction, What basis is there then for looking down our noses at or considering ourselves superior to others because they belong to a certain denomination or Christian tradition, participate in culturally different expressions of worship or do not share our same views on theology, politics, or matters of conscience? Am I saying that we must accept everyone else's views, by no means. Am I saying that we have to resign ourselves to or approve of people's wrong behaviors, sinful acts, or unloving actions? No, no. Loving someone does not mean affirming their behavior. Loving someone means accepting them as an equal heir, an equal member of the body, an equal partaker of the covenant promises without affirming everything that they do. Even, even when their beliefs, decisions, and actions have personally affected you, inconvenienced you, caused you pain or harm, even then, even then, One more thing before we finish the section. The question about Christian versus non-Christian might've popped into your head. Couldn't this make for a whole new form of self-righteous tribalism or social superiority? After all, I have made the clear distinction of two types of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not. I asked the question because obviously I asked the question of myself should we Christians consider ourselves superior to or more deserving than non-Christians? I hope the answer in your mind came immediately when I asked that question. By no means. That is the very point of the gospel and everything Paul presented in the first part of chapter two. We were all dead in transgressions and sins. There was no difference. The grace of God was not given to us because of our works or anything within us. It is by grace that we have been saved. Our faith was not even from ourselves. We too were just as desperately in need of God's grace. And we still are, aren't we? We are 100% dependent now on God's grace. If his grace is not sustaining me now, I would be up, I wouldn't be up here. And none of y'all would be sitting in those chairs if it weren't for God's grace right now in your lives. You need grace and so do they. There is no difference. We all need grace. Grace. We are not superior. Any talk of Christian superiority is simply not Christian. Part three motive. There's more. In verse 10, Paul provides a so that statement, giving a purpose, a motive for this mystery this amazing, miraculous composition of people called the church. And it's pretty fascinating. He says, So that so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And the rulers and authority in the heavenly places are angelic hosts. So God's plan in creating a multi-ethnic, Multicultural, multinational church was so that his manifold wisdom would be made known to the angels. Now we have to pause and ask, what is meant by manifold? All of you mechanics, it's not what you think. (laughs) His manifold wisdom. This is the only time this word is found in the New Testament. It is the combination of two other words, one being poly. Which means many or much, and the other is poikilos, meaning various or diverse. Much diversity. Hmm. What is even more helpful for our understanding is that this word appears one time in the Septuagint. That's the Greek Old Testament or Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul probably had in hand. Polypoikilos is the adjective used to describe Joseph's coat. You know, the coat of many colors that his father gave him. Huh, gives you chills, doesn't it? Hmm. Paul is making a clear tie here. God's multi-splendored wisdom is demonstrated through his multi-ethnic people called the church. It's just like Bill explained last week when he said, we are We are like the robe of many colors that Joseph wore. It was a gift from his earthly father. And our diversity is a gift from our heavenly father. But not only is our diversity a gift from our heavenly father, but it is a gift to the angels. What? Our diversity is a gift to the angelic hosts, a display of God's many splendored wisdom for them to adore. Think about that. Think about it for just a moment. Here we have the angels of heaven. Ponder all the ways in which the angels would have seen and experienced and known the wisdom of God. They were present. When God spoke at creation, an air thing leapt into existence. They were there and they saw that, the wisdom in that. They were there when the birds of the air and the fish of the sea were created from nothing. They were there when man was breathed into his lungs, the very breath of God, God breathing into man, whoa, the wisdom of God, whoa. They have gazed upon the vast outer reaches of space and seen the billions upon billions upon billions of stars and galaxies created by God's wisdom. They have watched and seen all of history from the very beginning and seen how God has acted in human history by his wisdom. And they have dwelt in the glory of heavenly realms since time first began, worshiping and adoring the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. And yet, and yet the Lord chooses to make known to them a greater, more profound understanding of his wisdom through the creation of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. through uniting a vast group of incomprehensibly distinct personalities, cultures, shades, shapes, and sizes to manifest his diverse wisdom in bringing such a diverse group of people into one redeemed body. This is simply amazing, simply amazing. And the angels see it and they shout for joy and they worship their God all the more because of this display of God's amazing grace and wisdom. Brian Chappelle writes, the heavenly hosts are to look at those of us in the church with all of our sin, differing personalities, cultural prejudices, and color differences and say, how did God do that? Whoa. How did he get such difficult and disagreeable creatures? Anybody say, "Uh uh-huh, that's me. together in one body to praise him. The manifold wisdom of the creator of God is really great. Just as Paul's sin makes the grace of God more apparent, the uniting of sinners in the body of Christ makes the grace of God more brilliant, even to the hosts of heaven. And get this, the church is intended not only to transform the world, but also to transfix Heaven. Oh. In the fifth chapter of John's revelation, we get a glimpse into the heavenly places. John describes it this way And they, that's the elders and living creatures, sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and ethnos. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels Numbering myriad upon myriad and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing because they have seen what, how he redeemed a people by his blood. He ransomed a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so they praise (laughs) the voice of many angels, myriads upon myriads. That's a lot. For ransoming a people from every tribe and tongue, people and ethnos. All realized. Christ Jesus. Verse 11 says this, this was according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. (laughs) The eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. He returns once again to the gospel to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the results of what he did. He realized this. In him, through him, we all, everyone in Christ have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now that phrase reminded me of what David actually wrote, read up here this morning. David and I did not conspire Since we have confidence, boldness, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This is because we are equal heirs in Christ, Jesus, equal members of the same body and equal partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ. Because of that, we all can approach the throne of God through faith. We all can approach the throne of God through faith. Can I get an amen? amen. Hallelujah with boldness and with confidence. Not because of anything that I have done or am, but because of his great grace and wisdom. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts. He has made all who are in Christ holy vessels by grace alone through faith alone. Stand firm first and foremost in the assurance of that. Stand firm in that. If you have faith in Jesus and what he has done, you are an equal heir. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are an equal heir. Member of the body of Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are an equal partaker of the covenant promises of God. Stand firm in that church. So I'm going to leave us with a question. How are we doing in reflecting this truth, the truth of the mystery right now? It is a current spiritual reality. It will be a heavenly reality. But how are we doing In the meantime, how are we standing firm with one another? John M. Perkins says this Christian brothers and sisters, black, white, brown, rich, and poor, we are family. We are one blood. We are adopted by the same father, saved by the same son, filled with the same spirit. In John 17, Jesus prays for everyone who would believe in him, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would be one. That oneness is how the world will know who Jesus is. Don't give a foothold to any kind of tribalism that could tear down that unity. So how are we being one in Christ right now? Is there anything that we are doing that could be giving a foothold to tearing down our unity in Christ? Any thoughts, attitudes, or actions that could be diminishing or veiling or obscuring or distorting this glorious mystery personally or corporately? What is the message that our lives are preaching to the angels? Brothers and sisters, stand firm with one another in this glorious unity purchased for us by Christ. Stand firm with one another that our lives, our testimony would reverberate to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. To the praise of your glorious grace, O God, to the praise of your glorious grace. We are one because of your grace and your magnificent manifold wisdom. We are one. Thank you for the mystery. Thank you that we all who sit here or just about every one of us is indeed a recipient of the glorious promise that came through that mystery that we are equal heirs. We are equal members of your body. We are are equal partakers of your covenant of grace. By faith, Lord, because of your grace, we rejoice in this truth. You are great, O God, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.